Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacked.com. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. My guest this episode likely needs little introduction. His paper, A Quantitative Approach to Tactical Asset Allocation, is the highest ranked paper on SSRN with over 200,000 downloads at the point of recording. But Meb Faber's interests go far beyond tactical asset allocation. His work over the last decade plus, from his blog to his podcast to the books he has authored, spans broad topics such as shareholder yield, global value, hard asset alternatives, risk parity, and angel investing, just to name a few. I rarely enter these podcast conversations with a singular objective. Being a prolific writer, however, there is very little that someone cannot find out about Meb's investment beliefs through a simple Google search. What I was keen to learn in this conversation is what drives those beliefs. Why does Meb keep searching and exploring? Is it simple curiosity, or is there a deeper underlying philosophy that unifies his body of work? As you can likely guess from the title of this podcast, there is indeed a unifying theory, but I'll let Meb explain. Thank you for joining me today. Great to be here in my office. In your office, yeah. Thank you for hosting me. I appreciate it. I'm going to interrupt you. I have a really important question before we start. I haven't heard your podcast yet. Do you have any intro music? I like that you've taken over as podcast <laughs> host already. You can't, you can't even let the table start. I do have intro music. Because this caused a lot of consternation for me. It's kind of like thinking about a baseball player and, and what's his, what's his going to be his walk-off music. And so the listeners will have already heard this by the time it gets public. Can you, can you give me a little hint? Taylor Swift? Yeah, it was Taylor Swift. It, it's actually funny because it is that that self-branding aspect of it. And then I got a song in my head that I was like, this is what I want it to be. So I passed it over to a musician. I said, this is, I want as close to this as possible without having copyright issues. But it's a little bit of a blues guitar, blues rock type feel to it. R.E.M. Everyone Hurts. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's funny because for a while I was like, you know, I'm going to get all the guests to give me their their own walk-off music and they can play whatever they want in the beginning. But it's all copyright, so it's a problem. But then it's even funnier because everyone listens to the episodes at one and a half or two X speed. Right. So, so it's going to sound totally different no matter what. Okay, well, everyone's already heard it. I'll, I'll listen when it comes out. 
Keep yeah, going. I'll make sure I, I, I hand it over to you. Can I have my podcast back now? You can have it. You can Thank have you. it. I appreciate it. Well, a little bit of a belated congratulations to you, by the way. I know you just passed uh, 100 plus episodes on your on your own podcast. Last fall, I think it was, you hit a billion in assets at Cambria, which massive overnight 12-year success. So mm-hmm. congratulations on Thanks, that. Thanks, man. But where I want to actually start, I actually feel a little bad about this starting point. It's sort of like having a band that's been on tour for 12 years and we're just going to ask you to play your hit song out of the gate but i want to start with your very famous quantitative approach to tactical asset allocation paper but where i actually want to start there and i've actually asked around a number of people and tried to get their input as to why you actually wrote that paper what was the catalyst to make you go down that road because it's been such a massively influential paper for a lot of people especially post-crisis rethinking asset allocation but nobody knows why you even wrote it? Like most people with their careers, there's a lot of serendipity. And so I was a young 20-something, know-nothing, and had just started Cambria. And for many of the designations, you know, CFA has like three levels of terrible tests. There's the kind of technical analysis cousin, redheaded stepchild version of the CFA, which is called the CMT by the MTA organization. And like CFA, it has three levels. And the third level used to be you could either take the test or write a paper. And the problem with a lot of the the CMT world and technical analysis is a lot of it to me is kind of in the same category as mythology. You know, a lot of it is fantastic and a wonderful base for other things. I believe in a lot of things, but then you have all sorts of weird stuff in that world that to me probably doesn't have a whole lot of serious sort of base for it. So anyway, they announced that they were going to do away with the third level paper. And I started having panic because the last thing I ever wanted to do, like many people, is take another test, half of which I didn't believe. So memorize it, regurgitate it. So you had to turn in an abstract by the end of the year. So I turned in an abstract, very poorly written, like two sentences on literally like December 30th. And it said something along the lines of, you know, a a trend-following approach to markets or something. And then I was like, well, crap, now I have to go and write it. And it started, you know, trend-following looks over 100 years old. You could even go back probably a couple hundred years as an investment methodology, very similar to value, right? Very, very long time sort of origins. And so what I did was just take a very simple approach to, trend following that made it really simple for for investors to follow and understand, but also put in the context of a typical asset allocation portfolio. A lot of trend following would get applied. The origins that most are familiar with the institutional community is the CTAs, Commodity Trading Advisors of the 70s, you know, the very famous sort of turtles and all that sort of stuff. Long, short, trades 50, 100 markets. So I said, well, let's, let's take it down to the kind of normal advisor individual level Let's just show how a very basic trend following works on typical asset classes like S&P 500. So did the modeling, wrote the paper. Original title of the paper was something along the lines of market timing approach to asset allocation, something with the word market timing in the title, and no one would read it. As you know, there's certain phrases that just automatically causes cause people's brains just to just misfire, and market timing may be the... the queen of them all like that that is the biggest probably phrase that that causes people to line up on two sides anyway it's like talking politics or religion so i eventually changed the title to 
the current title, which is a Quant Approach Tactical Asset Allocation. Published it. Again, I had never published it. I had I'd never even considered publishing in academic literature. But I said, you know what? This is kind of a fun paper. May as well. I've written it. Submitted it to a bunch of friends and a bunch of luminaries that I looked up to, three quarters of which either didn't respond to the email or told me that I was an idiot and market timing is impossible, including a couple Nobel laureates. And then a couple of people offered really thoughtful reviews of it. And one in particular said, Meb, look, you know, this is a good idea. It works. The way you've written this is a C paper. And honestly, to get it published in one of the, the top journals, like you need to write it in the format that these academics write it and, you know, clean it up a lot and work on it and get into that format. And then you probably have a chance. And so I did. And by the way, that was Rob not who, you know, is his manages, I think, 200 billion now at this point, close to it. But, but that also made a huge impression on me for the rest of my career where I said, man, look, if, if it made such a huge difference to me that a lot of these people would take the time or not. And some being downright rude and, and just very dismissive. Anyway, so I've only published two academic papers. I've written a dozen or so. But, but after that one, <laughs> the experience of publishing an academic paper, which there's like a year lead time. It goes through peer review, then it goes back and you get comments and back. And after that, I said, man, I'm just going to toss this online and, and let the entire world tear it apart as opposed to two guys, you know, in, in academia, because you'll get a lot more feedback that way. Anyway, but I finally published my second one, which was about the first one 10 years later. And it was a retrospective. And I, and I was very, I think, honest and humble. And I said, look, if this paper came out in 09, people would have been like, cool, but no shit, Sherlock. You know, it, it, it's obviously market timing works after the fact. So obviously so much of the paper popularity was because it came out before the crisis and said, this is how a trend-following model works, and then it worked. But of course, the funny part too is that trend-following in many cases has also struggled since then in the ensuing period so you've seen kind of both sides. And, and I think for like any investment approach, it's so important to be thoughtful and understand both the, the good and the, the bad sides. Was it out of the gate, a very popular paper? Because I think by the time I stumbled across it in post 2008, oh, no, I, I actually, I think I saw it in 2007. You know, if it came across my radar, it was probably pretty popular. But even still, I have to imagine the proof of 2008, 2009 just put rockets behind it. You know, it's funny because you see so much today where people talk about, and Vanguard's published a lot on this, you know, they say so many indexes, you look at the backtest performance and they go live and then it's terrible afterwards. And this is one of the rare cases that by far the best performance was actually randomly just out of sample. So it was popular. You know, the it's funny, the first version of the paper, I look back at it, I was reading the other day and we did this retrospective and, and, and you being a kind of quant nerd like me would have really appreciate it because it had much more in-depth statistical, like he was talking about skew and kurtosis and all this other stuff. And then I said, no one's, no one cares about that. Let's simplify it down to the, to the very core. And listeners, if you haven't read this paper, it's nothing more than a long-term moving average. So it was the 10-month simple moving average, which is essentially the monthly equivalent of the 200-day moving average overlaid on asset classes. And so we used five, but you can use many more. And Future versions of the papers had many, many derivations, but my my favorite ribbing I like to give my wife, who did her PhD in German philosophy, is I used to joke with her 
and this is being very self-deprecating, by the way. Don't want to sound like a total a-hole, but I used to always kid her because there's nothing more academic than being a PhD in, in philosophy. But I used to always say, you know, this is the most downloaded paper on the academic database. And she'd turn bright red and get angry and kick me in the shin. But I mean, look, so much in our world of finance, the people that get anointed, the the kind of kings of the world are people that try to forecast with a lot of conviction. And then if an event happens, they become immensely popular. So we can name so dozens of these people in history. And eventually, you know, the their time comes and goes and they start to get things wrong. And then the next one comes along and calls the next crash and they get it right or, or whatever it may be. So you can look back over the years and there's so many of them. And, and obviously there's an element of that shine, which people said, oh, he built this model that you know, did this. And look, so much of it was luck, so much of it was timing. That having been said, you know, in this ensuing 10 years, you've seen all sides of it. You've seen when and why it underperforms, when and why it outperforms or not. And there's still a lot of misconceptions about trend following in general that you probably get all the time too. But hopefully people are starting to kind of understand a little more. So you actually touched on two topics I wanted to, to veer into. So I'll hit the first, which is you did just publish your version two, your retrospective, a decade plus of out of sample experience with the model. And I want to get a sense from you. What were the surprising lessons learned in the decade since publishing? I think if you look at trend following in general and you have enough respect for history, you probably wouldn't be surprised by anything that's happened this decade. And I think the surprise for a lot of people is they misunderstanding trend following in general. So when you say trend following, it can mean a hundred different things. It's like saying, you know, dog where one's a St. Bernard and one's a beagle. There's a huge difference between those species. You say trend following, it can mean anything from what we just talked about, which is kind of that time series momentum where you're in or out of a market. So if you're above the long-term moving average, you're investing the S&P. If you're below it, you're out. That's very simple, but there's so many other flavors of it. You know, the CTAs typically are long short. So they short a lot of markets, whereas ours just move the cash. So it has very different outcomes. And so something like the system we're describing uh, that, that I published would have been flat in 08, maybe up a little bit, maybe down a little bit, but something like a CTA would have been up 30. So it's so different, same, same general description. So the, the, I think the surprise for most people that understand trend following is that by and large, that sort of binary in out, it's everyone wants it to be an outperformance sort of strategy where you're getting a lot higher compound returns because you're picking market tops and bottoms. And that's not how it works. Trend following particularly works because you get the majority meat of a move. You're never going to pick the bottom exactly. You're never going to pick the top exactly by definition. So really when it works best is these long trending markets. And so it's actually worked great as applied just to say S&P 500, the cycle, because it's been a very long trending market. But in general, you don't really outperform. What you do is you, you reduce the volatility, you reduce the really big drawdowns. And for so many people, that's, that's an important behavioral component. Psychological component of staying invested is, I mean, if you look back to the 1920s, 30s, U.S. stocks declined over 80%. And how many people can sit that? Very few. And people say, well, that, you know, that, that was a Great Depression. It doesn't happen. Well, I say, all right, well, look around to Greece and Russia and Cyprus and a gazillion other places. It's happened in the last 20 years. And it does happen. So 
I, I don't know that there's anything that's been a big surprise. I think the behavioral component, and we can get into this at some point too, of you know, buy and hold investing is tough for many reasons and it works great. Trend following is tough for a whole other set of reasons and it also works well. So I think you've seen the full cycle of all the, the warts and benefits and everything in between. I don't want to dwell on this topic too long, but there was sort of one last question I wanted to ask you because I think you'll have a unique perspective on this. I, I found that in my own writing, having developed somewhat of an audience now, people often bring their own interpretations to your writing. And sometimes they'll read a piece that you write and they'll walk away with a complete misunderstanding of what you were trying to say. And I can only imagine that this is truly exponential for you with a piece this popular. So with a decade of experience of having this writing out there and having it be so popular, number one on SSRN, what do you think the takeaway is that most people get wrong from this paper? Oh boy, there's a lot. So we actually added, we ended up adding FAQs because we got so many of the questions over and over again. And your point is funny because being a quant, the rules are black and white. That's the whole point. And one of the biggest challenges of a trend following approach or any active approach, buy and hold is nice because you do nothing by definition. Trend following, because if you're running it on your own, it introduces breakpoints, which are every time you have to make a trade, you have to make a decision. I mean, you shouldn't be if you follow the rules. It's it's black and white. And some people have struggled with that. And some people, it's second nature. So it's funny. I used to get people email me all the time and say, Meb, hey, I noticed like the REITs, they only close like 1% below the moving average. So should I wait, you know, probably till next month? I decided, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I'm going to wait till next month. And they start to introduce all of these discretionary inputs of their emotions and interests and biases, and it defeats the whole purpose, right? And because so many times when you're doing trend following, particularly at the end of long moves where something starts to roll over, and if you think about REITs back in 07, you're like, oh, man, we really want to sell REITs right now? Everything's ripping, Oh, I don't want to, maybe I'll wait a month or same thing in back March of 2009, you know, the trend following probably didn't enter until the next month or the following, but man, this looks like a great depression. Everyone I know has lost their job. Lehman has gone under all these banks have gone. Under. I, I'm just going to wait until, you know, things start to get a little better. And then again, next thing you know, it, it defeats the whole purpose of the system. So that's a big one. <laughs> then, of course, there's the people just straight up. I get emails say, hey, Meb, I was following your 300-day moving average system every week and where you published. You know, I said, whoa, <laughs> we didn't publish any of this stuff. The good news is there's a million different derivations you could take it. And we always said to people, say, look, a lot of people struggle with the binary outcomes. I need to be in or out. So we often said, hey, you could average across three or four different moving averages. You could update it weekly. You could do half monthly. You could do like a gazillion different things to start to eliminate some of these emotional problems. Over the years, there's been some evolution in my thinking about how it fits into a portfolio. I used to always say trend following is my desert island strategy, but that's evolved a bit over the years. I'm happy to get into that at some point. But yeah, I mean, it. it the biggest problem with investing across the board is people. And so we've had one of our largest investors, like you mentioned, entered a, a trend following program at probably the worst month in the past decade. 
and exited on arguably one of the worst months to have exited for a rolling performance. And, you know, we used to do some articles. If anyone reads those celebrity rags you see at the grocery store, U.S., no, Celebrity Weekly, I can't even remember the names of them, but they have a section, they're like, celebrities, they're just like us, where they'll show Britney Spears getting coffee or whatever. And so we used to write an article called Institutions, They're Just Like Us, where these billion-dollar institutions and advisors, they make the same mistakes, often chasing performance. And it's hard. I sympathize with it. But we've seen it particularly in the trend-following space. Now, that having been said, and I was talking with, with Jerry Parker about this, who's been doing this for much longer than I have, and he said, you know, Meb, look, if you close your eyes, if you plug trend following into a mean variance optimizer and you simply look at any of the indexes, any of the strategies, styles, you end up with a pretty heavy allocation to a trend following fund. How many advisors in the country allocate more than just a fraction, most of them zero, to a trend following strategy? Almost none. Now, if you really want to get deep, and I'm totally straying off your, your question, but the definition of passive investing, market cap weighted indexes. So think about the S&P 500. We're investing based on stocks, just based on size. That's a trend following index because the only input is price. You're investing more stocks go up, less as stocks go down. That's the ultimate trend following index. A lot of people don't like to hear that, particularly, you know, any, any of the buy and holders. But by definition, that is literally the definition of a momentum or trend following index. So anyway, so yeah, there's people who love to the fiddle. The doctors and engineers are the worst. I can say that I'm an engineer, but those are those are by far the worst investors because they, they know enough to be dangerous. I don't know if that's your experience, but it's definitely mine. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely been my experience because this is one of those ideas that is so simple that you think you can add more bells and whistles to it to make it better. And very often adding more complexity only introduces more room for error. Yep. And it only makes it worse. And, and then it becomes a maddening treadmill cycle of trying to improve it. So I want to touch on something you mentioned, which was your desert island strategy. And I had heard you say in the past that managed futures trend following was your desert island strategy. And one of the things I had a lot of fun doing in preparation for this podcast was not only listening to a number of your old podcasts, but actually going to your blog and going back to 2006 and 2007 and reading some of the posts you wrote. And and I'm going to get into those in a little bit. But I would l- love to hear a little bit about the evolution of your thinking since launching Cambria, since writing a quantitative approach, a tactical asset allocation. Sounds like maybe your desert island strategy has changed. You know, like like almost everyone, it's it's a journey. I, I was a biotech guy in college, late 90s internet bubble, biotech bubble, I was trading stocks from my dorm room, making tons of money, losing tons of money. Started out as a fundamental equity analyst in the biotech space, which is pretty tough because you have incredible binary outcomes where even some of the smartest scientists will get it wrong. Many of them are are kind of coin flips, but gravitate to be more and more quantitative. And I would like to think that I'm pretty honest, and this is a a phrase that's getting used a lot, but evidence-based where try to soak up as much history understanding of what possibly works, but have a common sense bent to it. And unlike a lot of people in our world, I actually think there's plenty of investment strategies that work just fine. If you tell me that your cousin is totally happy sitting in CDs, awesome. If your your uncle is a dividend guy and likes 
clipping dividend coupons, totally fine. You know, I have what I think is my optimized best ideas all into one kind of bucket that we can get to. But, you know, over the years to me, it's, it's meant a lot of different things. And as I get older, I'm optimizing more and more on less headache, an outcome that will hopefully work in any market environment, something that I think is balanced and hopefully benefiting from a lot of the ideas and mistakes that I made early. I mean, like many investors, you can be lucky enough to blow up a trade when you're young because that'll teach you a lot of lessons. And mine, mine certainly happened in my 20s where I was eating mustard sandwiches for a year trading options, which is a great way to blow up, by the way. And so, you know, there's there's an, an evolution and a journey for a lot of people. And I laugh because I, I talk to friends and say, man, I think most people probably just be totally fine and buying the global market portfolio and move on with their life. But for me, it's meant, you know, some of the really boring stuff ends up, I think, mattering a lot more than people think, stuff like fees and taxes, so the evolution has kind of come full circle. I can kind of tell you where we've arrived at at the finish line, unless you have some, some, some more questions along the way. Well, I've got plenty of questions along the way, but let's, let's go to the finish line. I mean, where, and then I'll circle back to my so questions. To me, to every person, the starting point should always be the global market portfolio. So that's, you go by the world of publicly available investment assets and that doesn't include a lot of real estate, doesn't include a lot of farmland, some other stuff that's private. But in general, if you buy the world of stocks and bonds and, and things like that, you end up with a portfolio of the world that's roughly half stocks and half bonds-ish. I'm rounding because it's simpler. And some stuff like corporate bonds is really a mix of the two. So the exposure probably looks a little more stock heavy. And of that, it's about half US, half foreign. And so almost no one has that portfolio. And almost in every country around the world, people put way too much in their own market. So in the US of the stock allocation, they put about 70% in the US. Our Italian friends do the same thing. Our Aussie, British, Japanese buddies all do the same thing, put way too much in their own market. It's called home country bias. And could it work out? Sure. But usually it's pretty horrible, uncompensated idea. But so to me, that's the starting point. If you want to deviate from there, great. And you want to make active bets from there, great. But that's to me always the starting point. That historically has done, you know, 9, 10% a year returns, similar volatility, big fat drawdown, can't really do anything to get around that. And one of the challenges too is is 99.9% of investors think in terms of nominal returns, meaning before inflation, but that's a big apples to oranges comparison over history because there's been time in the U.S. when inflation is high single digits, potentially even low double digits. Right now, it's what, 2%. Some countries, it gets even much higher, much lower. But to say a 10% return in the time of 8% inflation, you only really made 2% returns, returns you can eat. Whereas now, if you had a, 2%, if you had a 4% return and 2% inflation, it's the same thing. But it's, it's hard for people to think in those terms. It's hard to compared over time, it's a lot simpler to, to work with nominal. And that has a lot of repercussions. We can get that later. But, but one of the point, points being, if you look back over history, is that it's really, really, really hard 
to pick a portfolio on a buy and hold basis that doesn't decline at least 25% after inflation. And a lot of people say, Meb, but what are you talking about? Look at bonds. Bonds over the past year. There's no, we did this Twitter poll, which I'm, I'm sure you probably saw, where we said, you know, how much did you think bonds declined after inflation? 10-year bonds or long-term bonds. And I said 0 to 10, 10 to 20, you know, yada, yada, all the way down 50 plus. And by far, most people said 0 to 10. What's the answer? It's over 50% because inflation is the biggest risk for bonds. It's kind of that slow erosion, whereas stocks, it's kind of that crash risk. There's actually a great chart in your Trinity portfolio piece where you actually show the equity curve for, I think it's intermediate term, government bonds in the U.S. from 1926 onward. And if you look at the post-inflation chart, you actually, if you bought in 1926, you ended up with the exact same amount of money. I think it was 19, it was, it was something to like the late 1950s that after inflation, you hadn't made a dollar in bonds. Whereas if you looked at just the nominal inf- you know, curve, it was straight up. It's tough, you know, and so a lot of people, the conclusion they often come to is say, look, if bonds are, if bonds have 50% drawdowns and they have much lower returns, why not just put all your money in stocks? And the problem is stocks also are super volatile and they also have huge drawdowns. And so the combination of the two, because they're not perfectly correlated, is usually a bit better. And then you also got to think globally because there's examples of global bond markets that essentially lost all their value. If you think about Japan or Germany or any countries that went through hyperinflation, but the same thing can be said about stock markets. Russian and Chinese markets closed up shop totally in the 20th century. So you lost all your money. So there's no reason in my mind not to take a totally balanced approach. U.S. is one of the best performing capital markets of the 20, 20th century, no question. Would anyone have predicted that in 1899? Maybe. Chances are they might have liked Argentina too, and you would have lost a bunch of money there. So diversifying it makes a lot of sense. And, and if you want a little historical, we love saying... There's a rule of thumb that after inflation, global stocks should return. Historically, they have returned about 5%. Bonds, if you round up, about 2%. And bills, about 1%. Now, where it starts to get interesting is you say, all right, well, what about all the other stuff? Tactical asset allocation and, and models like that. And I think they can offer a lot of value, like the trend following stuff we, we talked about. And so we're, we've kind of settled for me personally is this trinity portfolio concept you talked about you mentioned which is half of the allocation in buy and hold and within that you still want to do some things that make sense you know that that will get you 90 percent of there just your asset allocation but should you tilt towards value away from a market cap weighting yes so is it worth doing yes should you add a little momentum in those indices yes that probably makes sense too so kind of adding better indexing or betting better strategies other than market cap weighting, basically anything other than market cap weighting. And then the other half of the portfolio is, for me, is, is a trend following portfolio. And that can mean a few different things. We use numerous funds in that allocation to diversify, but think that the, the trend following, both of those are equally hard to comply with. But I think having one foot as an anchor in the fundamental world of buy and hold lets you not be too different from your neighbor. It gives you a good return stream. You own assets that historically pay you. You're equity heavy. That's great. But on the flip side, you have the trend following component that if and when you have a monster long bear market, 
at least you have something that's zigging and zagging, hopefully, and something that hopefully protects you a little bit or a lot bit. And it gives you that feeling of at least you're trying to do something. I think a lot of people really struggle with buy and hold when you're not doing anything. I think that of all the G7 countries, I don't know of one that hasn't had a two-thirds 60-40 allocation drawdown on a real basis ever. And how many, how many clients can sit through a 60% drawdown? Not many. So I do want to come back to this Trinity portfolio, but I want to take a step back first. And again, having gone through a lot of your old blog posts, listened to a number of your podcasts, at, at the risk of flattery, you are somewhat of a modern day renaissance man of investing, just to sort of rip off a few of the topics that you've talked about at length or have personally invested in. This is getting ready to be so embarrassing. Farmland, rare coins, global tactical asset allocation, risk parity, global value, shareholder yield, 13F investing. You've gone on a whole crusade against the sort of dividend yield concept, large focus on endowment portfolios, closed-end funds trading at a discount. You've done some angel investing, and you've written extensively. I mean, I think you have something like 1,500 blog posts that you've written over the years. Take me a step back and help me triangulate what it is that Meb Faber actually believes in. There was a good Jim O'Shaughnessy thread that kind of went viral this week, which you can link to in your show notes for for listeners. And there was a place, and I'm going to paraphrase because I'll murder this, but he said something along the lines of, and the the listeners, if you're not familiar, Jim is kind of old school Quant, I mean, he wrote the Bible on... He's one of the godfathers. The godfather. I mean, he's on the Mount Rushmore, you know, wrote a book about equity screen, factor-based quant screening that, that he probably shouldn't have written because he would, he gave away a lot of the keys, but... And then he even named it What Works on Wall Street. Yeah, but, like, but, but then again, he got to go on Oprah for that, so it's a trade-off. Would you give away all your secrets to be on Oprah? So... He, but he had a tweet that he said something like, you know, here's all the things I've learned. This is what I believe. And this is what I strongly believe. But like, am I certain? And it's, you know, he's like, no, I believe that these things work and I have reasons and it makes sense. But, you know, the future, the future is uncertain. And then Zweig had a, a kind of similar quote. It was, he said something like the future is a storm of which you're getting blown into backwards. And I just love, <laughs> I just love that. That's like my day, my every day, I feel like, is a storm I'm getting blown into backwards. So there's a lot of things I believe in. I mean, do, look, do I believe in ultra low cost buy and hold investing that taxes and fees matter? Absolutely. Do I think the vast majority of the money management industry charges way too much for, for buy and hold investing? Yes. Do I believe that there are plenty of brilliant investors and hedge funds and private equity and angel investors that are worth their weight in gold? Absolutely. Do I rail against financial advisors that charge too much and do nothing? Yes. Do I believe that financial advisors are worth their weight in gold for what they do if they do offer value-added services like estate planning and taxes, insurance, and behavioral coaching? Absolutely. 1% is probably not enough. So it's a little bit complicated. There's a lot of areas where a little bit of knowledge, like real, real estate, if you're a local real estate investor and you have a huge amount of value-added knowledge and you know that that house in the corner, somebody got murdered in the basement and the one next door has chemical poisoning in the basement and the one next door has asbestos, like that's a value-added knowledge. And the same thing exists in our world where there's so many potential advantages and differences. And But I think the thing I believe in most is, one, being a student of history. 
So trying to soak up as much knowledge of what's happened in the past, what's worked, what hasn't worked, what's the really dumb mistakes to make. And the biggest compliment you can give any money manager in our entire world is simply that they survived. So you went back and looked at the blog, and I actually did this a year or two ago because it hit its 10-year anniversary. And I said, I'm going to go back and read every blog post. And on top of that, I went and clicked on all the links. Let's call it half for defunct. And half the money management shops, gone. Half the startups that I had linked to or cool ideas or websites, gone. Three quarters of the bloggers, you know, everyone thought writing, hey, I'm going to be a blogger, tried it for about a month. It's like, oh my God, that's so much work. I'm not going to do that anymore. So just surviving is, is tough in our world. And if you look at, I mean, 2017, by the way, was a graveyard for all-star hedge fund money managers. I mean, so many just gave up. Like they just had years and years of underperformance. And so I think a lot of what applies to our world of professional management, but also investors, is you just want to stay in the game. And so many people that, that, that we recently put out a podcast, and by the time this comes out, it should be out a piece on what we call the food pyramid of investing. Whereas what we knew 40 years ago about food pyramid, if you look at the bottom of the food pyramid, older, older listeners remember this, younger people, there's this USDA recommended diet where it said at the bottom was it was like bread, muffins, carbs, and cereal was like 11 servings a day. And I don't care what diet. You're probably on a keto diet. Whatever. I'm, I'm more of an intermittent fast. Paleo, guy. intermittent fast, or whatever the diet is today, I guarantee you none of them have the base of the diet is bread. So you learn, though, and that's, that's part of compounding of knowledge over time. And so same thing in investing. Like if you go back 50 years... What you knew is not what you know now, and, and you learn over time. But, but I think the biggest important thing is, is make sure you live to, to invest another day. And so a lot of the very basic stupid mistakes are the most important things to avoid. And like the, the rest of the asset management industry is all, you know, what we're spending all our, all our time debating and talking about is all well and good. But it's like the big muscle movements in the first place is not... Just don't do dumb stuff. So I want to explore this idea of just survive first in the context of the Trinity portfolio. And then I want to explore it in the context of Cambria and how you think about running an asset management firm. So let's start with the Trinity portfolio. This grounding theory for you of just survive, how does that actually exist in practice with the Trinity portfolio? So the, the, you got to remember that the best investment strategy is the one that works for you. And so we, we were tweeting the other day and we said, I was like, followers, find me an asset class or an allocation that on a real basis has declined less than 25%. It's basically impossible. And a lot of people would be surprised by that. They say, what do you mean, Matt? I put my money in CDs. I said, remember, after inflation. And cash has lost about half after inflation at one point. And so it's tough. And so... You know, a lot of people, they kind of think in two buckets, the get rich portfolio and the stay rich portfolio. And a lot of people that are used to the get rich portfolio don't transition well to the other. A good example is the tycoon in Brazil. I'm going to murder his name, like Batista or something. At one point, he got to $25 billion, And now I think he's equivalently at zero because concentration risk, which is what gets you rich, you know, and leverage those are horrible on the on the downside. And so 
you know, there's a great old phrase is once you get to a certain point, you know, realize you've won the game and, and you don't have to do the same thing. So Trinity was a concept where I said, look, I want to put everything possible into one holistically into a bucket. And then on top of that, you know, if you want to dial it down with more bonds, more cash, you can go one way. You want to get more aggressive, you can go the other way. You can customize it to your heart's com- content. To me, that's kind of where I've arrived at. But again, I'm, I'm, I'm honest that, that there's other ways. And, and the challenge is you look around the world and we're of the opinion that U.S. stocks are pretty expensive now. I, I don't think they're a bubble, but they're expensive. And historically, that sets you up for larger drawdowns and a higher possibility of a big fat drawdown. And so having a balanced portfolio and even having a fair amount of cash, too, is always erring on the side of of less risk, I think, is important. You know, it's funny because so much of what people invest in is colored by their personal experience. My mom, love her to death, one of the best investors I know. But her experience was she invested during the 80s and 90s. Her father worked for R.J. Reynolds, tobacco company, one of the best performing stocks of all time. So her experience is colored by that. And she used to always tell me growing up, which is actually good advice, but Joey said, Meb, you buy stocks, put them away, you hold them forever, which is good advice in general. But if you're someone in Greece or Russia or Brazil, you may not think that's such good advice. If your parents worked for Enron, you may not think that's such good advice or CMGI or pets.com or yada, yada, on and on. So, so much of it gets colored by your personal experience. So my allocation, and this is where, it starts to get fun and philosophical. And let me give you an example. Let's call it, I don't know, somewhere between 50 and 99% of my net worth is my company. So I was riding a chairlift with a buddy once and having this discussion and say, look, my public portfolio of investments compared to this, it's not a rounding error, but it's small. So if you think about it, you can make the argument one of two ways, and I think both are actually quite valid. One, because your entire outcome will be determined by this company, you should take as much risk in that public portfolio because it's not going to matter because it's going to be determined by the company's outcome. You could also make the argument that because your allocation is going to be dominated by your interest in your company, why take any risk at all? You should take no risk in your, in your personal portfolio. Well, let me put a third spin on this because this is something you and I have talked about. You happen to have the unique situation where you own an asset management firm. An asset management, you know, asset management firm valuations better than I do, but call it six to eight times EBITDA. And so your. We don't, a- have, we don't have any EBITDA, so that's easy. <laughs> so, so AUM and day to day market fluctuations are going to have a very large impact on your private net worth. So even though you have this private versus public, your private is a levered exposure to the public market by, you know? It's it's even worse for people that work for, say, Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley who's a wirehouse. And so we called it something like, if you're a financial advisor, you're four times levered to the stock market because one, you probably have your own personal portfolio in stocks. Second, and you may even, if you're a moron, have your retirement in your company's stock. You should never do that. Two is that your employer, again, your clients' portfolios, your revenue is tied to the market size. Third is that if you work for a company that 
you don't own your own company, you're at the risk of get fired in a downturn. So you just like quadruple leverage the stock market. And, you know, if you think about that, and almost no one does this, but the same way the Southwest Airlines hedges their fuel costs or, you know, a, a cereal company hedges their wheat cost, you could also make the argument that no financial advisor in the country should own stocks at all either <laughs> to smooth out their revenues. Or that they should consider some hedging with options or consider some like strategies, trend following, other ideas. But so that, that's the fun part about the philosophical side, because you could have inputs and, and on top, add the motions on top of that. So we've had an example was a couple, they've come together to their risk scores, you know, they're moderate, but she can't handle anything more than a 5% drawdown and he can handle 80. So it's, you add those emotions together. That's, that's going to create problems at some point. So part of it, that's part of the art of, of this world. And really it comes down to what you're comfortable with. So I, my family, my dad's side grew up in Kansas and Nebraska. My dad grew up on a farm. I mean, no running water outhouse sort of thing. And we, and we still have a lot of family in Kansas and so we have some wheat land, well, cropland in, in western Kansas. Mostly grows wheat, but uh, other crops too. And so when he passed away, we, the brothers inherited that. So we've kept that. And that's, at current wheat prices, basically like a T-bill investment. <laughs> it's fun. Until like two years ago when we had a combine that, that burned down. And then it becomes a huge pain. But a lot of fun. But it's a great diversifier. Farmland was actually one of the best performing asset classes of the 2000s until about a year or two ago until it got to like a P ratio of about 20. So for me, that's a big chunk. The, the public stuff is in the Trinity portfolios. And then personally, I've been doing, and I have some interest in, a, in another business started, but then angel investing. But to me, that's been something that I've been doing over the last five years because I think it's fun. I consider it a tuition. There's some behavioral benefits to that that historically I think a lot of people have considered to be negatives of the asset class but the fact that you invest in a private business and there is no exit so you you exit when the business goes out of business or they pay some dividends or they get acquired or IPO and that's it so the cool thing about that is you can't do anything you're stuck and there's some actual cool tax benefits we don't probably don't have time to get into today newer tax benefits of, of private investments called QSBS that you essentially can invest in them tax-free. That's pretty cool for a taxable investor. So, you know, for some people, they've arrived at a, at a totally different allocation for various reasons, but that ends up being mine. So let's get off our, our branches of tangents here and go back to the mainline thread of, of just survive. I had mentioned is, there were, is there a mainland thread? Okay. Well, let's go. I'm, I'm at least rewinding a little bit because I did mention there were two avenues I wanted to pursue and then never pursued the second. And the second is that idea of just survive in the context of running an asset management firm. When you look at the suite of products that you've launched at Cambria, it's you have a suite of country rotation based on both value and momentum. You have a suite of shareholder yield ETFs. You have a sovereign bond ETF, global asset allocation, zero cost global asset allocation, I think, except for the underlying expense ratios. You've got a value momentum tactical hedge and a recently launched tail risk ETF, all sort of within the suite. How do you think about structuring your product offerings and running your firm as it relates to this just survive philosophy there's about three to four criteria 
And as you know, as an investor, there's only so much we can control. Julian Robertson, who was the founder of Tiger, very famously said a young fund manager came up to him and said, hey, what's the best advice you can give a young young manager starting out? And he said, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, be lucky and in the first year have fantastic returns because everyone's going to think you're a genius and money will just wash all over you. And unfortunately in our world, that's true. And how many times have you seen, you know, the, the managers get anointed, the most brilliant managers? My favorite example from the 2000s was, I think it was the, the fund manager of the decade by Morningstar in 2000s. I think it was Ken Hebner. Mm-hmm. And great track. I mean, he did something like 12% a year. And that's awesome. Hugely different, sort of very concentrated guy. But the average investor in that fund didn't do 12%. It had like negative returns because they chased him after he had up 50% a year. Then he had down 70 and they all sold. So it's hard. So you can only control so much of, of the flows. And we joke. So the tail risk fund, for example, I say, I think it's a great time to be allocating to it. That fund is only going to see flows after the event, probably. As, as after it goes up 10, 20, 50%, then everyone's going to buy it, much to their detriment. But I can't really control that. So, so be lucky. That's the first part. But, uh, you know, for us, we have about four criteria when launching a fund. The first for me is it has to be something that no one else has launched or we think we can do a lot better or cheaper. Cheaper is a little more rare in a world of five basis points, but, but it does happen every once in a while. Second has to be something I want to put my own money into. And lastly, and this is kind of the hard part, is it has to, oh, sorry, it has to be something that, you know, there's enough evidence for that it works. It makes sense. Hopefully there's a lot of academic literature about it. It's common sense. You could probably explain it to your niece or nephew. Lastly, and this is the hardest one for me is always, is it anything anyone wants? And we have some ideas that I think are just awesome. And I guarantee you, not a single person on the planet is going to want it. A good example is we wrote a paper where we basically demonstrated that a taxable investor should never invest in high dividend stocks because they're going to get hammered with taxes. So their after-tax return is lower than the S&P. Well, imagine the hate mail from that. So I said, a better solution because dividends are essentially a value till, not particularly a good one, is if you're going to do value, just do value. And so do a value strategy that avoids high dividend stocks. And so picture the, the potential investors in that one. We're going to launch a, a no or low-yielding fund. Come on. But if you're an honest person, after-tax basis, even if that fund kept up with the S&P, after taxes, it's a much better investment. And with the value tilt, it should be better than the S&P. So listeners, if you've got a $20 million, $20 million seed and you want to launch that, let me know. Talk to me. But that's an example of, uh, you know, and the flip side is, so many of my good friends, so many buddies of ours in the industry, you know, launch funds that are, you could, you could say they're fun, a lot of thematics, but are they in the best interest of the investor? Probably not. And we had a scenario this past January where we could have, and we could still be the first to do it, launch a Bitcoin futures fund. And there's like, I don't know, 12 in registration, right? And so there's a little workaround to where we could be the first one to market and that would raise a billion dollars. There's no question. And I said, you know, it's just not 
it's not really my thing. It's not my brand. I don't own it. I wouldn't own it. I don't know. So it's challenging because there's, in our industry, you have kind of two different types of firms. The ones that historically, you know, will charge as much as possible and get away with it. There's S&P 500 mutual fund that charges 2.3%, which is the same thing you can get for five basis points. And it literally has S&P 500 in the name, right X Guggenheim. I'm talking to you. But there's plenty that charge above a percent, percent and a half. And who owns those? It's people that have either died or forgotten or have been sold and don't know better. And that's predatory. Anyway, getting off topic. So those are kind of the criteria. And so when you're building a firm in our early days, believe me, when we just had one or two funds out and they were long only equity, that was not a good sleep at night situation for me. Now I sleep at night anyway, so that's not a good analogy, but having that exposure made me very nervous because, because as a risk manager and and you're, I'm sure the same way is I could spend all night spinning my wheels thinking of the thousand different outcomes of what can happen. And, and a good example as a good investor, as a better, you know, you got to think in terms of all the possible outcomes. So you sit down at a blackjack table and there's the, the guy at the end of the table that, you know, the dealer, has a six card and the the guy somehow has like a 17 and hits it anyway, but still gets a four and says, I told you so. See? So, you know, how many people go back to the last president's inauguration would have predicted the first year in history with 12 up months in the row in the stock market? Zero. But we saw it. And so that's on a positive surprise. But of course you get the negative too. So having long only exposure was very nervous for me, but now I'm, I'm much happier with somewhat of a a blended outcome, but going back to your way earlier point, the biggest risk is still stock beta. So I want to bring this as we've been sort of narrowing down our scope, sort of one last question for you before the final question that I'm asking everyone, but we've been talking about sort of research philosophy, implementation, the business you're running here at Cambria. And I do want to get a sense from you. You do run a number of different ETFs of varying complexity. And so this is a podcast about quants and how they think. I want to get a sense from you how you think about bringing a new product to market, the research required to bring it to market, and how you determine how complex that strategy ultimately needs to be before you can say, okay, this is this is ready for prime time. Given all things being equal, I prefer simpler. And, you know, let, let's look at our largest fund and invest in 12 cheapest stock markets around the world, rebounds once a year. Could not be more simple. So, so of the 45 developed and emerging market countries, it invests in the top quartile and rebounds once a year. And straight up value strategy, super simple, super low turnover but super concentrated too. And so it's going to look a lot different. It, we launched it in 2014. 2014 just got crushed. It was still as the U.S. stock market outperformed. It was number one country in the world from 2009 to about 2015, which has basically never happened for that long of a stretch. It's very, very rare. U.S. versus foreign is basically a coin flip. And 2014, we launched it and it kept going down. And then since then has been just uh, on fire outperformer, but it's very, very concentrated. And you're going to look very, very different. So a funny part is, is I often say to people, I say, look, 
if you're a value investor, it's equally important to be invested in, in the cheap stuff, but it's as important to be avoiding the really expensive, you know, so making, not making the dumb mistake of being in, invested in the U.S. now, or over, at least really overweight, or invested in China and India in the mid-2000s. You remember the BRICS? Everyone's marketing the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, and China in the mid-2000s. Uh, China and India were trading at P ratios of 40 to 60. Not investing in the U.S. in the late 90s, not investing in Japan, the biggest bubble we've ever seen in the 80s at P ratio of 100. So the main gist of that strategy is, is value investing, and it's simple. And it's so funny going back to our old trend following conversation where people want to complicate. They say, Meb, well... Shouldn't you be updating this quarterly? Can you send me the valuation metrics every month? And I say, it doesn't matter. Actually, the more you rebalance the strategy, the worse it gets. It actually hurts it, a value strategy, to, to rebalance it more often when it's that such deep value. And so thinking about that and the implementation of complexity, I think most important for investors is that concept of storytelling. And so thinking of products, I prefer they to be as simple as possible, but... I, th- I think getting it wrapped around someone's head with, okay, I get it. I, I like the story. That's as, as humans, that's how we interact. So I could tell you statistically why high dividend stocks have zero chance against a, a shareholder yield strategy going forward. And the same reason that they've gotten pummeled by a shareholder yield strategy the last four years. But is that the good story? No, the good story is, hey, think about dividends as only part of the picture. You think about a, a way a company distributes their cash, like Apple, which is a great case study, just announced $100 billion in buybacks. And people can start to understand that. Again, the, the, the litmus test for me, which is not the case for most fund companies, is I invest in all of our funds. I want to invest in our funds. And usually that's why we launch them is because there's nothing exists. The tail risk fund, there's no fun like it. And going back to what you're talking about, I said, I want a way that me personally and our company, so our, not only do I own the tail risk fund, our company owns it as a way. And it's been a terrible investment. And I hope it continues to be a terrible investment and loses money every year for the next 10 years. The same way that my car insurance and my house insurance lose money. I am totally fine with that. In fact, that's the best case scenario because that means everything else is making money. So my biggest criteria is I want to invest in it. And for me, complexity for complexity's sake, you know, is not the end goal. Last question. Man, come on. I, we, we, I feel like we got another hour or two easy. We, we can our, keep my, going. Our, our studio turns into a sauna here. So I, I've about sweated through bro- both of my shirts because we usually have to turn the fan down because it gets too noisy. Well, you can keep, we can keep pouring the rum over here. <laughs> so last question which is to get a, more of a sense of who Meb Faber is. And, and I've been asking this question to everyone, asking it slightly different way just to, to make sure I get a good cross-section of responses here. But let's say your wife knew as much about investing as you do and was going to explain you as an investment strategy. So she could say, hey, you know, Meb is a slow and steady guy. He's low vol. Or, you know, that guy gets way too excited. He's momentum. And it can be as esoteric or vanilla. It could be market beta. It could be merger arbitrage. How would your wife describe you as an investment strategy? What, can we, I feel like we should just call her and ask, ask in. You need like a call in. It'd be funnier. It's like the, the radio show where they actually call the person and, 
and ask them, she, she would probably say I'm more like commodities. I'm just volatile. There's, there's, there's no expected return whatsoever. <laughs> there's a lot of downside. There's years of just underperformance. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll exceed expectations. And when you least expect it, there's a supply glut or there's a thunderstorm somewhere, a hailstorm that takes out all the crop. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think she would probably say it's... The, the stability of like a general boring ass asset allocation with flipping tactically to the volatility of commodities at random times. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I get what we'll, we'll have to record. I'll record her later and, and send it to you. That's yeah, a great, we'll, that's a great question. We'll throw it in post interview here. I thought you were gonna say, what's my gun to my head? Favorite investment. No, that's too easy. Yeah. No, we still, want it, would, it would still it would still be commodities, by the way. Today or yeah, all the time? I love commodities right now. Everyone hates them. They've been getting pummeled. I mean, commodities is tough because you got to do commodity groups. So energy has been going up for a while. Base metals have had a great run. Precious is, is kind of starting to move in an uptrend. But ag has just gotten crushed. And as you're starting to see interest rates come up, you're starting to see inflation come up. I like it. We did a we did a post. Man, this goes back to our first book, 2007, where we looked at asset classes that were down multiple years in a row. And usually, it's pretty rare for that to happen. It happened to emerging markets and commodities a couple of years ago. And emerging markets have been ripping. Commodities as an asset class, which is mostly energy for most of the indices, have done well. But pockets of them have done very poorly. I think if I recall correctly, it was asset classes that have been down five years in a row. Well, so it just so, sort of gets exponentially more attractive. It's almost like a poor man's value. Approach. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a fun study that I wouldn't put any money to. But so asset class, I think it was three years in a row. So like the big asset classes, stocks, bonds, commodities. And that's only happened like four times since the 70s. Bonds, long bonds that happened in the late 70s, early 80s. Stocks that happened in 2000, 2003, along with foreign and then it just happened with emerging and commodities, whatever it was, two years ago. With sectors and industries, because they're more volatile and concentrated, you can take that out to three, four, five years. And I think you've only had five years down in a row, like a couple times. It was coal and like the Great Depression and coal again, like three years ago. What was the other one? Uranium, maybe like a year or two ago. And all, the only one flashing right now, because we've had a kind of global bull, has been anything ag-related. So we'll wait for the commodity rotation fund to, yeah. to come out shortly. Sure. Meb, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for hosting me here. Corey, it's been a blast. Good luck with the pod and, and look forward to coming back on again. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Meb Faber. You can learn more about Meb at mebfaber.com and on Twitter under the handle Meb Faber. Show notes for this episode are available at flirtingwithmodels.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, I'd urge you to share the podcast with a friend or on social media and leave us a review on iTunes.